Hi, this is Nate Wuggiehout, producer of the WORT Local News. We know we're one of Madison's best podcasts, but let's make it official. Nominations for Madison Magazine's Best of Madison competition are open through the end of the month. Help nominate this show in the Best Podcast category. Just go to tinyurl.com slash votewart and cast your vote for the WORT Local News in the Podcast category. And you can nominate us every day through the end of the month. So vote early and vote often, maybe when you're listening to this show. Final voting will take place in June. Thanks in advance. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. After less than two and a half years at the helm, Madison Schools Superintendent Dr. Carlton Jenkins has announced that he will resign in July. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Jenkins said that after 34 years of work in school administration, he wanted to retire and spend time with his three-year-old grandson. Jenkins was hired in August of 2020 and was the Madison School District's first black superintendent. At last week's State of the School District address, Jenkins was upbeat about the general direction of the district and the high level of its staff and leadership. The school board took nine months to hire a new leader in 2020, who then decided to turn down the job. Jenkins was then hired as the third superintendent in 10 years. Governor Tony Evers is looking to make it harder for the Republican-controlled legislature to block conservationists in the state from buying land for stewardship projects, reports the Associated Press. That comes after the State Finance Committee blocked a plan to spend more than $15 million last month to preserve 56,000 acres of forest in northern Wisconsin. That project was blocked by a single Republican legislator, anonymously, as rules currently permit. While about $11 million of the project was to come from the federal government, the remaining $4 million would have come from the state's Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program. Evers will include in his proposed budget a requirement that any member of the legislature who objects to a purchase be named publicly. In addition to ending anonymous objections, Evers' proposal would no longer give legislature give, give le- legislators <laughs> review for purchases in the northernmost third of the state or land purchases under half a million dollars. He will also seek more funds for tree planting in state forests. The cost of planting crops for Wisconsin farmers is expected to increase at least 10% this year. Agricultural economists say that they are predicting that the cost of farm production will hit a record high after several years of cost increases. This will likely result in thinner profits if commodity prices do not increase at a rate consistent with their costs. On the plus side, many farmers aren't expecting to borrow as much to plant this year after earning higher profits from last year's harvest. Aaron Tigert, a farm loan officer, told Wisconsin Public Radio that at the end of the day, the revenue will all depend on Mother Nature. GOP lawmakers have introduced a bill that would not allow people convicted of a felony the right to vote until they've paid off all fines and court fees. Under current law, people convicted of a felony have their voting rights restored once they've finished their prison sentence, parole, and probation. 
Introduced by Republican Representative Shay Sortwell of Two Rivers and Republican Senator Dewey Strobel of Cedarburg, the two call the bill common sense and say it gives full accountability to those who owe a debt to society. That's according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Democratic lawmakers are criticizing the bill, saying that it would uh, further disenfranchise voters. If the bill is approved by the legislature, it is very unlikely it would be signed into law by Governor Evers. The Capital Times reports that out-of-school suspensions rose for Madison middle and high school students in the fall semester this year, compared to last year. Among high school students, there were 614 suspensions for 372 students, up from 447 suspensions for 315 students a year ago. The increase was especially prevalent for black students. In middle schools, 22% of all black students faced suspension, compared to 9% of middle schoolers overall. In high schools, 15% of all black students were suspended, compared to 5% of all high school students. District leaders have long acknowledged the discipline disparities in MMSD schools, with school board president Allie Muldrow saying that she is against suspension in general. And those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. <coughs> Bicycles on footbridges, upping the number of allowable backyard chickens, and reconfiguring public safety oversight were all up for debate at last night's Common Council meeting, which dueled for our attention with the President's State of the Union address. Also up for debate during the five-hour-plus meeting, whether to lend historic status to a nondescript building that once held the world headquarters for the credit union movement. Our producer, Nate Weggehaupt, sat through that council meeting, so you didn't have to. Located at 1617 Sherman Avenue near Tenney Park, the nondescript building is known as the Filing House. It's named after Edward Filing, founder of the Credit Union National Association, or CUNA. Built in 1950, the property was once the headquarters for the credit union movement. President Harry Truman even gave a dedication speech there when construction was completed. The future of the Filing House, though, has become a flashpoint for how to balance historic preservation with Madison's complex housing crisis. Those seeking to prevent the demolition of the property say the Albite nondescript building is still an important piece of history and one physical reminder of a place Madison made its mark nationally. Others say that historic status shouldn't impede a plan to raise the building, adding more housing supply to the isthmus as the city grapples to provide enough affordable homes to residents. The issue has been brewing since last month, when the city's Landmarks Commission unanimously voted to recommend designating the building a historic landmark. That decision befuddled some, who say the building does not contain characteristics that make the building itself unique, or like other buildings that have received historic status. That comes as Chicago-based developer Vermilion Development seeks to demolish the building and in its place add over 300 apartments to the Tenney Laugham neighborhood. Vermilion first introduced their plans to the city back in October, and the landmark designation was proposed just two months later, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Some neighbors have called for Vermilion to incorporate the existing Filene House into the housing development. But developers say that building on top of it the two-story building isn't possible and there would be numerous obstacles to turning what stands now into housing. They deemed that less than 50% of the physical building would remain 
in the instance of a rehab. And what does that mean? That means that the existing systems in the building, whether it's mechanical, electrical, plumbing, HVAC, all need to be removed because they're not suitable for residential use. The existing windows, as much as we might like them visibly, are not usable for residential use. They need to be operable in order to be appropriate for residences. The structure can't support additional floors. So you have a two-story building that cannot be built upon and it's rather inefficient for an eight acre site to be constrained in that manner. Vermillion has proposed a community meeting space to commemorate the historic nature of the property. They also point out that the most recent neighborhood plan suggests that the property should be used for housing and that the current property has led to increased flooding for neighbors. But those in favor of preserving the filing house and designating it as a landmark were in force last night with about an hour of heated public comment. Larry Nesper is a member of the Sherman Terrace Neighborhood Association. He says the filing house is an important fixture to the neighborhood. This building is already a landmark for us. We use it to give directions to family and friends visiting at the terrace. We admire its unpretentious mid-20th century modern style. The 34 glass windows on the two-story facade reflect the light of the sky in the evening and mirror the clouds at sunset. Its brown and cream brick not only evoke other buildings in Madison of the same era, but add to the beauty of the natural color palette, all framed by the mature maples and pines. Others took aim at the developers themselves. Clearly, Chicago is now trying to retaliate for a decision made, what, 94 years ago? To put the filing house in Madison rather than in Chicago. I think, I think it's obvious. But still, some spoke against the historic designation and in favor of adding more housing to the city, which is experiencing a housing crisis. There have always been, and always will be, speeches by important people commemorating the work done by good organizations. But what makes these organizations special is not where they do the work, but the work that they do. Let's not confuse these two and start arbitrarily preserving buildings just to stand in the way of other worthy goals. In this case, the other worthy goal is housing people. The council did not outright deny the landmark designation. Instead, they placed the designation on file, meaning that they could take it up again in the future. The vote to place it on file without prejudice passed on a 14 to 5 vote. Alder Patrick Heck of District 2, who voted in favor of placing the nomination on file, says that the unanimous recommendation from the Landmarks Commission is just that, a recommendation. I really think it's a judgment call. Uh, the language of the ordinance includes, I think, a lot of words that are subject to interpretation, and it, it, it includes that council may uh, and that landmarks may declare something a landmark based on a nomination. It doesn't say that we must. And I also believe that the historical significance uh, standard is subjective, and I judge that this property is not particularly significant compared to others that we've declared landmarks. Vermillion submitted their plans for the site last month. Even if the filing house was designated a historic landmark, there would still be a path forward for the property to be redeveloped. Vermillion's proposal will go before the plan commission next month. Meanwhile, the council approved the rezoning of the former Market Square Theater, a discount cinema on Odana Road, that shuttered its doors last year. That property is slated for a six-story apartment building project amidst objections from some residents at a neighboring senior living facility. 
And the council rejected several proposals to use unspent dollars that would have gone to increase alder pay. They also pushed along but did not decide several proposals, which would up the number of allowable backyard chickens, repeal laws prohibiting bicycle trick riding and bikes on footbridges, and a plan to dissolve a public safety committee. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. On the heels of his State of the Union speech last night, President Joe Biden came to the Madison area today to tout the economic achievements made by his administration so far. Speaking at the Leuna Labor Training Center in DeForest, President Biden focused his 20-minute speech on the importance of union jobs, both across the country and here in Madison, and creating unity between Democrats and Republicans. This is an extended excerpt from his speech earlier today. My American plan, my economic plan is for the middle and working class Americans to get up every morning, go to work, bust their necks just trying to get an honest living. You know, my dad used to have an expression. He wasn't a college guy. He regretted he never got to go to college. But my dad worked like hell. My dad used to say, and I mean this sincerely, and all the kids in the family know it, he'd say, Joey, a job's about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay and mean it and mean it. Look, I've said many times, Wall Street did not build this country. The middle class built the country and unions built the middle class. That's a fact. For real, that's a God's truth. And by the way, now you're rebuilding the country. I signed a a once-in-a-generation investment in putting Americans to work rebuilding our national infrastructure. It was bipartisan. Republicans signed on to it, too. Not all of them, but enough to get it passed. And by the way, I told them, even those that didn't vote for it, call and say, we need a project in my district. I said, okay, good, we'll do it. See it, the groundbreaking. You know, for really. I'm president for all of America. You know, at, at the port of Green Bay, we're helping turn an old water plant site into a new port terminal. Going to create thousands of jobs over time. This is a big deal. You know, we're just up the road in Columbia County, just up the road. Funds from the infrastructure are going to replace the Wisconsin River Bridge. Here in Madison, American tell you we're using the funding to buy 46 electric buses, replacing dirty diesel buses. They're bad health for the environment. Each of these projects means jobs for laborers, plumbers, pipefitters, electricians, carpenters, cement masons, iron workers, and so many more. These are good jobs, jobs you can raise a family on, and most don't require a college degree, jobs where people don't have to leave home in search of an opportunity. But they do require at least four years of trained apprenticeships, which is one of the reasons the United States has the best trained workers in the world like you. And by the way, the vast majority of Americans don't know that. We ought to tell them, keep telling them. Every time they say, why are you so pro-labor? Because you're the best workers in the world. And they say, how's that? Nobody decides, I want to be a laborer, I want to be a plumber, I want to be an electrician. It takes you four years 
busting your neck, basically going back to school to be able to become certified. That's why you're the best. You're the best educated in what you do. I really mean it. I spoke with members of the business roundtable, the big business guys. They asked, why am I so pro-labor? Because you save them money. What you do lasts. What you do lasts. And through the American Rescue Plan, we're funding workforce development programs, including $128 million here in Wisconsin dollars in Wisconsin, so American workers are prepared to compete in the economy we're building. This is a blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America. And we're also doing something that for years people just talked about. We're going to buy American for everything we build. Last night, I announced we're proposing new standards to require all construction materials used on federal infrastructure projects be made in America. American lumber, American glass, American drywall, American fiber optics, American roads, bridges, highways made with American products. My first two years in office, we've created 800,000 manufacturing jobs. Where? I mean it sincerely, jobs you can live on. Where is it written America can't lead the world in manufacturing again? I didn't see it written anywhere. Our economic, our economic agenda has ignited a new manufacturing boom. Just outside of Madison, Arrowhead Pharmaceuticals going to hire 250 workers in a drug manufacturing facility. Georgia Pacific is committed to a major expansion of the Green Bay paper production facility, bringing in 100 new employees and hiring 500 construction workers. For decades, we've imported project, we've imported products from abroad and sent jobs overseas because they thought it was cheaper to have the cheaper labor. Now America's exporting product overseas and creating jobs here at home. Look, I didn't come from a poor family. I came from a typical middle-class family. Split-level home, four kids, a grandpa living with us. Wasn't so private for my mom and dad, but we thought it was good. But all kidding aside, typical middle-class family. For decades, the backbone of America, the middle class, has been hollowed out. It's been hollowed out. Good-paying manufacturing jobs moved overseas production because it was cheaper there. When jobs move overseas, factories at home close down. You saw it in Janesville, where Sarah, a woman you just heard from, is from. When the last assembly line was shut down in the GM plant, two days before Christmas 2008, thousands of people lost their jobs at the plant and the surrounding businesses that the plant kept alive. Look, think about how many moms and dads had to have that conversation with their kids. Honey. I just lost my job. We got to move, honey. I'm not sure where. We can't live here anymore. No job. Once thriving cities and towns became shadows what they used to be. And when those towns were hollowed out, something else was lost. Pride, self-esteem, a sense of self-worth. But now we're going to turn that around. We're building an economy where no one's going to be left behind. 
My economic plan is about investing in places, people that have been forgotten. As part of that plan, I talked last night about things we're going to do for families. Just a little more breathing room. Just give them, my dad said, just a little more breathing room. At the end of the month when everything's paid, you have just a little more breathing room. We're going to lower the cost of everyday products for you all. And we're talking, t taking on what we call junk fees. Those hidden surcharges businesses use to make you pay more. We're making airlines show just how the full price of the ticket costs up front, not after the fact. And refund your money if your flight is canceled. We reduce the, ex the exportation, the, excuse me, the exorbitant bank overdraft fees, saving an American taxpayer a million, a billion dollars a year. Just these fees that were exorbitant for an overdraft. We're proposing to cut credit card fees by 75%. Now they average, if you're, if it's, if you're over, if you're late in the payment by a day, it's 30 bucks. Guess what? It's going to be $8 now. I heard a, com a commentator on the way flying out here in Air Force One. The television was on. Talking about little things like junk fees. Why isn't Biden talking about important things? Important issues. Why well, the next thing he's going to be talking about taking in your garbage. Well, let me tell you something. Junk fees may not matter to the wealthy people, but they matter to most folks like the home I grew up in. They add hundreds of dollars. They add hundreds of dollars a month to make it harder to pay your bills or afford that family trip. I know how unfair it feels when a company overcharges you and think they can get away with it. It plays for suckers, and it makes you angry. At least it does me. Frankly, it offends me to think about it. So I'm calling on Congress to pass a junk-free prevention act so we can do more than crack down on these junk fees. For too long, workers have been getting stiffed. You know, 30 million workers, the vast majority of them on an hourly wage, had to sign non-compete agreements when they took their job. 30 million. These aren't trade secrets they're hiding. They are hourly wages. That's when a construction worker on a job site can't cross the street and take a job with another outfit make a couple more bucks. We're banning these agreements for companies that will comp compete, won't compete, so they pay people the fair share. Why in God's name you tell a working hourly worker that they have to sign an agreement that they will not take a similar job in anywhere in the area? Look, one of my objectives is to restore the dignity of work, to restore it. time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thank you for staying with us. District 14 sits on the south side of Madison, containing the future homes of both the Black Business Hub and the Cultural Center for Black Excellence. Later this month, three candidates will appear on the primary ballot to represent the area on the Common Council. And we conclude our coverage of that election with Noah Lieberman, who spoke with WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt about his vision for Madison's South Side.
The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 14 on the south side of Madison, containing parts of Fish Hatchery Road and Park Street. One of the three candidates running in that district's primary is Noah Lieberman, who joins me now by phone. Noah, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Nate. Just to kick things off, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Yeah, so I came here like a lot of 20-somethings who come to Madison for the first time. I got a job offer at Epic, and while that was what brought me here, uh, it's not what kept me here in Madison. I just immediately fell in love with the culture, the landscape, the people, and really the values of this city. Um, I've spent the last five years serving as the vice chair of campaigns for the Dane County Democratic Party. And in that role, I have helped to elect dozens of progressive champions to city councils, county boards, and school boards around the county. And I'm running right now so that I can uh, further those goals and really make sure that Madison is living up to its ideals. And sort of going off of that, why did you decide to run for Alder of District 14? Yeah, like I said, I really love the progressive ideals of this city. I am so uh, happy to be in a place that is so committed to affordable housing, public transit, fighting climate change, racial justice. But I think that a lot of the times we hold ourselves back. We cannot be so subservient to the status quo that we do not pursue the policies that will really make a tangible difference in people's lives. I want to make sure we're pursuing the most effective policies we can, and not allowing bickering or infighting to stand in the way of making real progress for people. And Noah, have you ever previously held any elected office? Uh, no, I have not. And now, sticking with you just a little while longer here, what what do you do in your spare time? Yeah, so I am a big lover of theater. Um, I've acted in a couple performances at Broom Street Theater over on Willie Street. I am also a huge foodie. I spend a lot of time cooking and going to the fantastic restaurants uh, we have here in Madison. And now let's take a look at the city as a whole. You know, looking at Madison here, what are some of the most pressing issues facing the city that you would want to address? Number one for me is, without a doubt, the lack of affordable housing. This is not a crisis that is off in the future. This is a crisis that is here right now for people. I definitely think we need to be building more multifamily housing of all types, not just the same cookie-cutter apartment complexes that have been popping up, but more townhouses, condos, duplexes, avenues to affordable home ownership for people. I'm also currently a member of the Landlord-Tenant Issues Committee for the city, and I have seen how some uh, renters are mistreated, so I definitely believe that strengthening tenants' rights through the promotion of a tenants' union is going to be key in preventing some of these outrageous rent hikes and other substandard quality of living conditions that renters see in our city. Affordable housing doesn't just mean new development. It has to mean supporting people and making sure their housing stays affordable. And I'm going off of that, I want to get into a couple specific issues facing Madison, and let's start with housing. What sort of initiatives would you like to see to, to bring more affordable housing to Madison? Yeah, so unfortunately, the city is limited in what it can do because of uh, preemptive laws passed by the Republican state legislature during the Walker administration. So in order for us to really 
affect good change here, we have to think of some out-of-the-box solutions. Uh, the most obvious things we can do are changing the zoning. I fully support the uh, TOD changes uh, that were passed a couple weeks ago and other changes that would bring more multifamily housing across the city. Uh, we also need to work with developers to make sure that as much of the housing as possible is being offered at below market rate. Uh, but in terms of that market rate housing, giving more power to tenants is the only way that they can use that collective power to demand lower rents and to make sure that they're not being taken advantage of. Uh, so I think that um, this was a solution I first heard of from Alder Brian Benford, the creation of a renter's union with the backing of the city who can provide it resources um, and avenues to uh, reach out to more renters will be the best way at building up that collective strength and ensuring that housing stays affordable in the long run. Another issue facing Madison here in the next few years is public transit. Now, bus rapid transit set to take off next year and network redesign set to start later this year. Uh, how, how do you feel about that? I am absolutely in support of the bus rapid transit. Um, I think that first line is going to be incredibly helpful. My district will be helped by that second line that comes down Park Street. Um, and I think that is going to make commuting in and out of my district very convenient for folks who don't have those options right now. As far as the general metro redesign, the one thing I would like to see is that the standard routes, uh, which go off into the neighborhoods, I don't think are going to be running with the uh, necessary frequency to make public transit a true door-to-door uh, solution for most commuters. So I would like to see more routes into the neighborhoods and more frequency on those routes. But in general, I think we're making the right steps to take cars off the road, lower our carbon emission, and ease traffic congestion. Now, turning our eyes onto District 14 now, your district is seeing two significant investments to support Black Madisonians with the Black Business Hub and the Center for Black Excellence. Uh, what conversations have you had with the leaders of those organizations? Yeah, I have not spoken with the leaders of those two uh, individual organizations yet. Um, I have those planned. I'm looking forward to talking with them. But I fully support uh, the city partnering with initiatives like that, like the Progress Center for Black Women. I, I think that the work those organizations do is crucial in helping to bridge the racial disparities we have in the wealth gap and in business ownership here in Madison. And now, what are a couple of other key issues facing your specific district there? What have you heard from potential constituents? One thing that you hear all of the time in my district is that the streets are not safe uh, for pedestrians and for children, especially. I live in the Rimrock Moreland area, and Moreland Road is just known to be too dangerous to have kids out on. People come flying down that road at speeds of uh, 45, 50 miles per hour. And in a certain way, you can't blame them. The road is built in such a way that it just invites these higher speeds. So one thing I'm hearing a lot is redesigning our roads to encourage lower speeds, uh, really in line with the mayor's Vision Zero initiative, and to make it so that people feel comfortable having their kids play in their front yards, walking on the sidewalks, that they're not so scared that reckless driving is going to cost them that ultimate price there. 
Now, Noah, sometimes issues get complicated at the city council. Now, let's say that you have an issue where some of your constituents want to see some policy happen, and you have other constituents who want to see the exact opposite happen. How would you handle that sort of situation? Yeah. Well, first I'll say, in my experience uh, working with other elected officials, I've had to learn how to see both sides of issues and how to do mediation. Ultimately, if we can reach a common ground that serves both sides' needs, that is what I'm going to want to do. In the case where we can't, I like viewing things through an equity lens, seeing uh, who has been historically disadvantaged by the decisions that the city council has made in this area, and what can we do to uh, erase those inequities. Um, So that's the lens at which I'd look through those issues uh, and explain my decisions to my constituents to try to make sure they understood why I voted the way I did. Now, just wrapping things up here, Noah, do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share with us? Yeah, the most rewarding thing of this campaign for me has been getting to talk with the people in my district and understand what their concerns are, uh, what their needs are on the city council, um, and how they want the council to embody those values and ideals of this great city. So if you are in the district, or even if you are not, I would really love to hear from people. Uh, My website is noahforcouncil.com. You can email me through there. I would love to know what your top priorities are and what I can do to best serve you on the council. I've been talking with Noah Lieberman, one of the three candidates running in the spring primary election for District 14 Alder. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Noah, thank you so much again for talking with me here today. Thank you. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, you'd hardly know it from the beautiful, sunny, warm afternoon we've just been through, but we've got a storm streaking our way from the southwest, uh, very much in line with what the modeling had indicated back on Monday morning when I gave the forecast. The storm will uh, be both intense and fast-moving, which makes for a difficult combination as far as forecasting is concerned, especially since the circulation will also be rather compact and will therefore have a relatively confined area in which its most significant impacts will be felt. In this particular case, the heavy snow belt may just be 20 or 40 miles wide, if that, with significant drop-offs in totals then to either side. So it'll be tough to land that a data point with any exactitude. The storm is so far looking to play out pretty much as anticipated back on Monday, but the track of the surface circulation has only begun to be narrowed down by the higher resolution computer models in just the past 12 or 24 hours, and even at that, there's still some variation. The consensus now seems to be a pass from about uh, Springfield, Illinois, northeastward to around Chicago or Kenosha, and then rapidly northeastward from there across the Great Lakes. This is fairly similar to the predicted path back on Monday, and I mentioned at the time, although we'd be normally positioned for snow on such a storm track during winter, that we were likely to have too much of a warm environment to produce very much snow here. Uh, That would seem to be corroborated by today's 45-degree high temperature, and that's before the southerly winds have started to kick in on the lead side of the circulation. But there is a wild card with this storm, and it's what's going on in the upper air. The low-level circulation with the system will be swinging into a position between two upper jet branches as it comes up through Illinois, which will be evacuating the atmosphere above and ahead of it. 
And that's going to produce enough uh, upward motion as the storm reaches about northern Illinois tomorrow morning to cool the air column in the second mile above ground level down below freezing from the upper 30s where it's going to be during the overnight hours. And that'll turn the rainy and mixy precipitation we'll be seeing early on tomorrow into a period of uh, quite enthusiastic snow the way it's appearing. Exactly where that snow band sets up, though, is a difficult call. The storm is compact to start with, and there may be only a narrow northeastward running corridor in which the column cools sufficiently to produce snow, but is also not overrun by drier air, which is going to be feeding into the circulation from the north and west. The odds-on favorite at the moment for where that heavy snow swath will fall down is from about uh, western Lafayette County through Iowa County, northwestern Daner, southern Sauk County, and on up to and through Columbia County. Uh, given the strength of lifting and the copious moisture that will be available by tomorrow morning, an intense four or five hours of snow in the midday may put down uh, five or six, maybe even seven inches in some spots. So the snow will be wet and heavy, and so it will compact some. Uh, Incidentally, you can have a look at this developing storm on the water vapor image of the continental U.S. that's on the WORT weather webpage this evening. The satellite's been a little glitchy today, though, so it's not the smoothest sequence, but you can get a good idea of the uh, strength of the storm coming together to our south. Cooler air then coming in behind the storm with the upper trough may keep flurries going off and on into Friday. But subsidence under the incoming surface high-pressure cell should uh, clear us out by, I think, later Friday and keep us then clear, uh, at least relatively clear, on through the weekend. And we don't have to worry about any additional precipitation, I don't think, until about the mid-part of next week. But back to tonight, the, the high clouds now cascading into skies from the southwest will continue to thicken downwards through the night, with temperatures holding in the low 30s on uh, light southeasterly winds initially that will start to kip, pick up and back more east and northeast as we get on towards dawn. Light rain or mixed precipitation will start up uh, in the hours before dawn as well, and that, they, that will intensify as we get on into the uh, breakfast time period tomorrow morning. And at some point, maybe uh, 8 or 9 o'clock, something like that, or slightly earlier or later, we should transition over to all snow, I think, from about central Dane County north and northwestward. The National Weather Service is currently envisioning five or more inches coming down in the city here between about 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. tomorrow. I'm guessing those totals will actually be displaced a little further north and west up towards the Wisconsin River with maybe three or four inches accumulating here in the city. Uh, That's just a a guess, though, basically. Uh, Temperatures will hold in the low 30s with north and northeasterly winds uh, howling for a while up at 15 to 25 miles per hour. The snow may be quite intense while it's falling during the late morning hours, especially if the heaviest snow band does set up to our north up in the rural parts of uh, northwestern Dane County. Snow should exit uh, east and north by the late morning, uh, or the late afternoon, I should say, though uh, flurries may continue through the overnight. Temperatures uh, will drop back to the low 20s tomorrow night on northwesterly winds, which will finally start to come down to about 8 to 15 miles per hour by dawn on Friday. It'll still be quite breezy through much of the overnight. Sky should be clearing then as we enter the day Friday, and perhaps with uh, some increase briefly midday, but clearing skies in the afternoon should, I think, take the temperatures up to the mid or upper 20s on Friday. We'll then drop to the low teens in the overnight period with lighter winds backing more westerly. And Saturday should be mostly sunny with temperatures back in the low 30s as winds back more southwesterly and start to come up then as we go overnight and into the day Sunday. 
with temperatures that day back in the mid or upper 30s, so back to the melting shortly after we get the snow. The current temperature down here at the station on Bedford Street is 38 degrees. The dew point temperature is 26. Uh, winds are light out of the south, about 5 miles per hour. Uh, we're seeing a bit of passing cumulus over the station, up at about uh, passing cumulus, passing cirrus above the station, about 23,000 feet. And the barometer is falling at uh, 30.10 inches of mercury. We go now to the first week of February 1969 for the start of the historic Black Studies strike at the University of Wisconsin. Stu Levitan has the details on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, February 1969, the Black Studies Strike, Part 1. The most successful UW protest of the decade may have been sparked by a symposium the first week of February 1969, as the week-long conference, The Black Revolution, To What Ends?, crystallizes the growing black power movement on campus and leads to 10 days of disruption, an hour of destruction, and the creation of the Department of Afro-American Studies. The story starts in May 1968, when Chancellor William Sewell responds to the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. by creating a special committee to address race relations on the campus and in America. At the time, the university's black studies curriculum consisted of just three courses, and the Black People's Alliance was demanding additional courses and some programs. But in November, the committee went beyond what the BPA was demanding, proposing new courses in Afro-American studies in January and expanding that to a full Afro-American studies concentration towards a BA in American institutions by fall. The committee, named after its chair, Professor William Thede, calls it, quote, essential both morally and academically for the university to start a black studies program as soon as possible. A concentration in Afro-American studies was more than what the students had asked for, but not enough for one of the professors at the Black Revolution Symposium. Produced by Union Forum Committee Chairs Marjorie Tabankin and Neil Weisfeld for $8,861, the conference attracts 16,500 attendees to hear 21 nationally renowned guest speakers and 43 faculty, staff, students, and local activists among them City Council candidate Eugene Parks, the associate editor of the black-oriented Madison Sun newspaper, People Against Racism organizer Frank Emspach, university administrator and former football star Merritt Norville, Unitarian minister Max Gabler, and attorney alder Milo Flayton. At the panel on Racism in Madison, Madison Sun publisher Lawrence Saunders says that Madison itself is, quote, hiding behind a cloak of liberalism. Parks denounces the university for not divesting itself of stock it holds in Chase Manhattan Bank, which helped financially prop up the apartheid government in South Africa. Chase Manhattan is making money off the backs of blacks in Africa, Parks says, demanding the university, quote, repudiate such connections. A week later, the regents sell their 3,300 shares of Chase stock, but make no public announcement. Organizers don't ignore cultural and historical aspects. The Memorial Union's main gallery hosts a collection of paintings, sculptures, and prints by a dozen black artists. 
And across Langdon Street, there's a black history exhibition at the State Historical Society, featuring African artifacts, photographs of the slave trade, and a narrative of the black experience in Wisconsin. There are screenings of the film Black Power and a documentary about the life of Huey P. Newton, daily showings of the movie Dutchman, based on the play by Leroy Jones, and a reception discussion with Pulitzer Prize poet Gwendolyn Brooks, this semester's Rennebaum Professor of Creative Writing. And among the speakers is sociology professor Nathan Hare, acting chairman of the embryonic Department of Black Studies at San Francisco State University, and a leader in the bitter three-month-old black strike that led to its creation. On Wednesday, February 5th, Hare tells a standing-room-only Great Hall crowd that, quote, the white university establishment is destroying black society and culture, and that, quote, we may have to cut off the ears of a few college deans. At a panel that night, he tells students they must, quote, do whatever needs to be done to get the university to meet your demands. Afterward, Hare meets with Willie Edwards of the Black People's Alliance and other black student leaders and puts black activism at the UW into context with the hard-line crackdown that new San Francisco State President Esai Hayakawa has begun. We are on the front lines at San Francisco State and getting our asses kicked, he tells them, you are on a radical campus and have a responsibility to your brothers and sisters to take action. Edwards and the others embrace Hare's challenge and start planning a Wisconsin black strike, led by an inner circle called the Wapindusi Wayusi, Swahili, more or less, for black agitator. Late morning on Friday, February 7th, Edwards and a group of black students present a list of 13 demands to Vice Chancellor Chandler Young for delivery to Chancellor Edwin Young. At a noon rally on Library Mall, they relate the demands, including an autonomous black studies department controlled and organized by black students and faculty, with a black chairman approved by black students and faculty. That black students have veto power in hiring and firing all administrators and teachers involved in anything relating to the new black studies department. At least 500 additional black students be admitted to the university by fall, black student control over a black cultural center, amnesty for all strike participants, and admission for any students expelled from UW Oshkosh to the UW-Madison. That afternoon, as the Reverend Andrew Young, Executive Director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, prepares to speak at the conference on Where Do We Go From Here?, about 300 students sweep up Bascom Hill and disrupt classes in seven university buildings. Members of the group, about three-quarters of whom are white, briefly take over numerous classrooms to read and explain the demands. Some professors and students are intimidated, but there are no serious incidents or arrests. Swelling to about 500, the group marches down to Library Mall for another rally, banging trash cans and chanting, On strike! Shut it down! Then it's back up the hill for another round of classroom disruptions, including a Professor Harvey Goldberg's History 474 lecture, followed by a mass meeting of about more than a thousand at the Union Theater. That's where one black speaker calls for, quote, complete disruption, and if that doesn't work, complete destruction of the university. Speaking to an overflow conference crowd of about 1,300 in the Great Hall that evening, the Reverend Jesse Jackson says the 13 demands, quote, should be followed to the letter. 
All weekend, blacks reach out to whites to explain their demands, generating what UW Police Chief Ralph Hansen calls an amazing amount of public support, even from the usually apolitical Southeast Orbs. But not from the Daily Cardinal. It calls the group's demands for student control, quote, impossible to meet, and says the black students, quote, know that they are demanding that an institution destroy itself. Saturday afternoon, Edwards tells a Great Hall crowd that, quote, the only power we have is to disrupt, and that if the 13 demands are not met, quote, this university will not function. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan there. Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast. And Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>